Good morning, fellowship. My name is Tiara. I am one of the pastors here, if I have not yet met you. Um, And whether you're joining us in person or online, it is such a gift to be able to worship with you this morning. This morning's call to worship comes to us from Revelation chapter 4. And so I invite you to ponder these words from the scriptures. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will, they were created and have their being." In the throne room of God, the creatures, the angels, and the elders enthusiastically sing the praises of our God in gratitude to our triune God and his love and grace and mercy that he has lavished upon us. Let us join our voices with the heavens this morning. Would you stand and join us in singing?
invite you to join me in speaking the words of Psalm 121. The words will be on the screen and we can speak them in unison together. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Indeed, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Let's sing together. When peace like a
be seated. Please join me in prayer. Living Christ, our souls are well when they find their rest and comfort in you and you alone. For your love is spacious, capacious, and gracious. You remind us of our uniqueness and giftedness that you made when you knit us together in our mother's womb. You love and cherish us as beautiful, even more so than the most spectacular summer flower or blue water views. You see us even in our darkest moments, our fear and anger, our bitterness and rage, and stay with us, holding us in your presence in spite of our immaturity. Your love is indeed spacious, capacious, and gracious. Yet, we seek comfort in so many other ways. In the perceived comfort of influence that tricks us to think that power is king. In the perceived comfort of possessions whose quick hit of delight always seems to fade away. In the perceived comfort of consumption that helps us escape only for a little bit. In the perceived comfort of prestige that connects our worth to other people's perception of us. Help us, O oh God, to remember that our only comfort in life and in death is you, living Christ. Loosen the grip of these perceived comforts in our lives so that we may rest in your bountiful love. We pray these things in and through Christ. Amen. Being a loved people, let us consider this week how we might love our family, our friends, and our neighbors anew. Let us join in song, but after you say something, Jess. We're going to learn a new song together. Um, this song was written in 2020, so not that long ago, um, but it's new to us at Fellowship. And we invite you to learn it with us in whatever way you do that best. Do you listen first and then join in or sing right from the beginning, however you are comfortable? Uh, you won't be wasting your time. We will be bringing this one back several times this summer. You'll hear it more often. So let's sing together.
and brothers in Christ, it is because of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection that we have peace with God and with one another. The peace of Christ be with you. I invite you to share a sign of that peace with your neighbor and those who are worshiping online, greet each other in the chat. to be with you. Um, I am Tiara, one of the pastors here at Fellowship, where our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. I have a couple of things for us this morning. Um, first, if you are new with us, um, if this is your first Sunday here, or maybe you've been here for a few weeks and you're ready to make a connection with us, we would love to get to know you. And there's some great folks over at the Welcome Center and also a connection card there that you can complete. Um, and they would get, love to get to know your names and share them with us as well. Um, as a reminder, some of our middle school students are with Hannah and John down at the New Wilmington Mission Conference in Pennsylvania. Uh, the New Mil Wilmington Mission Conference is a mouthful, and I stumble over it every time, but it is the longest-running Christian mission-focused event in the United States. It's 116 years and counting. Uh, it's an inter intergenerational event, a full week of, of learning and growing together, fellowshipping with people of all ages. Uh, and the conference itself is dedicated to helping everyone find their and find and follow their call to the Great Commission wherever they are in life and the world. So if you think about them this week, please do think about them this week and pray for them, safe travel. Um, and also fellowship and learning and service alongside believers of all ages. This morning, we actually have a couple of guests um, joining us, uh, Uzana and Blessing, and there's two kids. They're, they're there in the back. If you could just like wave your hand a little bit. There we go. <laughs> uh, so um, Uzana is one of Hope College's newest professors, um, so please extend a heartfelt welcome to the two of them. <laughs> Thank you. 
Uh, so Uzana will be teaching in the geology department at Hope College, um, and they are working to get settled in the area. Uh, particularly, they're looking for furniture and also to purchase a used car. So if you are inclined toward either of those, uh, you should see Reverend Nate. Um, <laughs> Reverend, <laughs> the very Reverend Nate uh, for, for more details about that. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, so lastly, uh, thank you for just your ongoing generosity um, to and through the fellowship community. Uh, it supports not only our ministry here at Fellowship, but also numerous local and global mission partners. Uh, there are a number of ways to begin or to continue your financial partnership with us, including online and also um, in person via the giving bowls in the back of the sanctuary. Uh, finally, our youths... Is that happening? Yes. Okay, our youths aged... Three to first grade are dismissed at this time. Thank you. Really, this song will be a prayer um, that the Holy Spirit would um, really illumine our hearts and our minds that uh, what God is speaking to us this morning through his word um, would be in our hearts. Let's sing together.
may be seated. Good morning, friends. The Lord be with you. Repeat after me. Two mountains. Two mountains. That's what I hope you notice today in our text and also in your own lives. Two mountains. Two very different mountains. The mountains represent two different life postures, two different life strategies, even two different life goals. And the question that God asks of those who seek to climb these mountains is a personal one. What are you doing here? Name. And a name is inserted there. Today you might picture a pastor like me stepping into a pulpit to preach. And God says, what are you doing here, Ross? You might picture yourself clocking into your day job, whatever that might be, and perhaps you're on a bit of autopilot that day, and God says, what are you doing here? Name. You might picture a political zealot rising early in the morning to plan the next smear campaign, and God whispers, what are you doing here? Name. You might picture a young parent who logs on to social media to take a peek at the life that they are now missing out on. And God says, what are you doing here? Name. To the teenager who's trying on various personas in pursuit of a true identity, God says, what are you doing here, son, daughter? To anyone, anywhere who struggles deeply to get out of bed in the morning, God whispers, what are you doing here, beloved? In each of these cases and many more, when God asks the question, it's personal, it's local, it's tender, it's relational, it's introspective, it's purposeful. And today I want to suggest that it is this very question asked by God that helps us to move from the first mountain to the second mountain of life. In the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18, we find Elijah the prophet exhausting himself with first mountain efforts. He's on Mount Carmel. On this particular mountain, the scene is a prophetic showdown between Elijah alone and 450 other prophets of Baal. It's a dramatic scene of divine testing, of interfaith taunting and teasing, of religious extravagance, of water-soaked altars, of fire falling down from heaven, and of murder on a mountaintop. Sounds like a Dateline special. Eventually, Elijah emerges triumphant, and today's story follows immediately after that. It is the story, literally, of Elijah moving from the first mountain to the second mountain. So I invite you to hear the word of the Lord from the book that we love, 1 Kings chapter 19, where it says this. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there 
while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom brush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once, an angel of the Lord touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he went into the cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Then the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came. And go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha to succeed you as prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Say it with me again. Two mountains. Today's text is about a lot of things, but today I hope you'll notice with me that it's also about two mountains. Elijah, once standing tall and celebrating on the first mountain of life, has now moved on to the second mountain, and boy, is it different on the second mountain. Some people call it a midlife crisis. Others call it growing up or reprioritizing. Still others call it Losing your marbles. To be sure, life in this world can often feel like a mountain climb, and sometimes we realize it's time to switch mountains. For some people, it happens early in life, perhaps in your 20s. Others can be 80-plus years old and still climbing the first mountain. For still others, the move from the first mountain to the second mountain is more complex, and it happens layer by layer throughout a lifetime. Today, I want to consider with you today the two mountains, the valley between and the move from the first to the second. In the Elijah story, the first mountain, as we've already said, is Mount Carmel. 
Mount Carmel is on the northernmost edge of the Holy Land, way up there. Uh, it is a place of natural beauty. It is attractive, even alluring. And the photo I have there up for you is a bit ominous, and fittingly so, because it was also a bit of a hotbed for some rather shady stuff, especially in Elijah's day. It was a place of idol worship. Biblically and symbolically, especially in the Elijah story, Mount Carmel, therefore, stands for the temptations of idolatry. Even with the psalm that we recited together earlier in the service, Psalm 121, which says, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? We today might typically think, what a nice move. Uh, it's the beauty of God's great creation, Purple Mountain's majesty. That's a good thing. Not so in biblical times. The mountains were quite different, and the message there, a different one altogether. Eugene Peterson says it well when he says that at the time that most of the Old Testament was written, Palestine was overrun with popular pagan worship, and much of this religion took place on the hilltops, on the mountainsides. Shrines were set up. Children were sacrificed. Sacred prostitutes, both male and female, were provided. Superstitions were enacted. Persons were lured to these places to engage in acts of worship that would enhance the fertility of the land, that would make you feel good, that would protect you from all evil. The hills back then are perhaps representative of some of the modern ones that we have yet still today, kind of like online shopping and its promise of all the possessions you could ever want or a dark alley somewhere that promises all the pleasure you could ever want, or Hollywood, which promises fame, or Washington, D.C., which promises power. The lure of all of these first mountain things is a temptation that says, come up here, and all your dreams will come true. Today, the appeal of first mountain living can be similarly idolatrous. In fact, I love the way it's said in a small book called You Are What You Love by a professor out of Calvin University, but in it, he's quoting David Foster Wallace, who has no theological agenda. David Foster Wallace is a speaker at Kenyon College to a bunch of graduates. And in that speech, he says to those graduates, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel that you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. What caught my attention this week in regard to the Elijah story is that particularly when he is on the first mountain, on Mount Carmel, that is the place where we see Elijah getting big. He strongly resists classic idolatry, worshiping Baal in that particular setting. And yet I wonder 
if he also simultaneously falls prey to some of the more subtle idolatries of life on the first mountain. He's rather typically ambitious there. Some godly ambition and some not-so-godly ambition. He gets big. He orchestrates a public display of powers, power. He seeks a glorious win, and he dances on the graves of the losers. And Elijah seems to be doing all of this for God and only barely with God. In fact, if you read chapter 18 again of 1 Kings, you'll see that God only instructs Elijah to go to King Ahab to announce a coming drought. All the drama of the hillside smackdown, that's Elijah's idea. And the slaughtering, that too is all Elijah. God is silent. The whole story reads as if Elijah is the main character and God is some kind of cosmic stagehand. That's first mountain living, friends. With or without God, life on the first mountain is about me or us winning. Even in Christian circles, this has come to us in the form of what's called the ABCs of church. Attendance, building, and cash. For some, that's what it's all about, right? For many people, success at church is not simply loving God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. For some, it's significantly more ambitious than that. It's about soaring attendance. It's about bigger and better buildings. It's about cash that flows. So I'd like to introduce you to a person named Andy Stanley. Perhaps you know him already. This is not a negative example, by the way. But according to First Mountain Living and the ABCs of church, Andy is a champion. His churches in Atlanta have 30,000-plus members, eight campuses in that city alone, and 180 other satellite stations. And they have cash that is beyond most churches' wildest dreams. And yet, it seems that he and his churches are moving from the first mountain to the second mountain of life. I'll say more about that in a bit, but first, let's talk about Elijah's second mountain. For Elijah, the second mountain is Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is about 300, maybe more, miles south from Mount Carmel, a long, long journey, actually. It's down there in the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt. Its exact location is not known, even still today, perhaps fittingly so, because biblically, Mount Horeb is the mountain of God. Its other name is Mount Sinai. It's the two names for the same mountain. This is the mountain where God befriended Moses and gave the Ten Commandments. Mount Horeb is biblically the place of a truly religious, life-transforming encounter with God. So for both Moses and Elijah, Mount Horeb becomes the place where they experience God's compassion, God's fellowship, and God's revelation. I hope you noticed, on Mount Carmel, that's the place where Elijah gets big and God seems small. Elijah speaks and God doesn't. When Elijah kills, God is not mentioned. On Mount Horeb, God is big. 
and Elijah is small. Elijah is no longer calling the shots. On the second mountain, God takes the lead. I must admit that some of the ideas I'm sharing with you today have come from a book by David Brooks called The Second Mountain. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's a national bestseller. He doesn't mention in this book Mount Carmel or Mount Horeb, but I think it's fitting to the ideas we're sharing today. Pastor Nate and I read this together when we were on our renewal. This is what David Brooks says about the mountains. He says, on the first mountain, we all have to perform certain life tasks, establish an identity, cultivate our talents, build a secure ego, try to make a mark on the world. People climbing the first mountain of life spend a lot of time thinking about reputation management. They're always keeping score and trying to measure up. The second mountain is the journey after that. It's the more generous and satisfying phase of life. It's the first, if the first mountain is about building up the ego and defining the self, the second mountain is about shedding the ego and losing the self. You conquer the first mountain, he says. You are conquered by the second mountain. On the first mountain, you tend to be ambitious, strategic, and independent. On the second mountain, you tend to be relational, intimate, and relentless, end quote. So back to Andy Stanley, my kind of running example here. And by the way, I've never met Andy Stanley. I don't know his heart. But it seems to me from a distance that part of his move to the second mountain is evident in the latest book he's written and the series the church has been following. It's called Not In It to Win It not in it to win it. He has been teaching himself and his huge congregation that Jesus didn't win, at least not in the ways that we typically define winning nowadays in the world. Jesus lost, and he lost on purpose, and he lost with a purpose. And so Andy and his church, they're reminding each other of what to do rather than conquering their opponents. They are instead saying, you are more important to me than my view. That's different. Elijah's move from Mount Carmel to Mount Horeb is a move that I think God is inviting all of us to make at some point or multiple points throughout our lives in this world. On the first mountain, it's about me winning and someone else losing. On the second mountain, it's about me losing so that someone else can win. On the first mountain, the driving factor is ambition, and Elijah is arrogant. On the second mountain, we're driven more by vocation, a God-given vocation, and Elijah is humble. On the first mountain, it's about becoming an achieving self and doing for God. On the second mountain, it's about being an embodied soul doing with God. That's different. So at this point, it's a fitting question to ask of Elijah and of ourselves, what causes a person to move from the first mountain to the second mountain? So far, I think there's at least three answers to that question. The first is that some don't. Some spend their whole life on the first mountain and don't move on to the second mountain. The second answer is that some people move from the first mountain to the second mountain because of a deep inner desire, a holy 
stirring, a holy longing given by the Spirit of God. Some people move because of that. Thirdly, some people move, most people move from the first mountain to the second mountain because of some hardship, some failure, some loss. The circumstances of life force a move from the one to the other. Elijah seems to fit this third type. After creating a competitive world in chapter 18, chapter 19 begins with Elijah meeting his match. Queen Jezebel seems to be the one person in the world who is even more ambitious, even more zealous than Elijah. She has lost once to him, and now she is double determined to fight back, to win with a vengeance. After all, in a win-lose world, the competition is never over, right? It cycles. Winners become losers, losers become winners, the Pistons beat the Bulls, the Bulls beat the Pistons, eventually someone else wins too, and all of this slugging back and forth, famously, as we sometimes say, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And so Elijah runs. He runs, he quits, he pouts, he doubts, and he even hopes to die. He ends up in a rather familiar breakdown, a physical, spiritual, mental breakdown. The New Testament describes him, perhaps fittingly so, all of us. In James chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Elijah was a human just like the rest of us. Of course he was. Lots of parallels could be drawn between Elijah's struggles and the mental health struggles that we are all too familiar with in our world today. Most importantly, however, I hope that you notice God. Notice God in Elijah's story. At Elijah's weakest moment, God meets him where he is. God feeds him. God comforts him for as long as it takes. God helps him move from the place he is to the place he needs to be, and then God reinstates him into a new kind of ministry, and this one is less competitive and more cooperative. Twice on that mountain, God asks Elijah the soul-searching question, what are you doing here? Twice, Elijah offers the exact same response. He's stuck. God asks the question in the present. Elijah offers a response that tells a story about the past. He is stuck. And God leans in all the more. God does some dramatic things. And God does some very, very peaceful things. And eventually, Elijah is reinstated. But he's not sent out to win bigger and to win better. He's not sent out to be an even bigger hero than he was before. He's sent out to share the load. He's sent out to elevate others. He's sent out to be less about doing for God and more about doing with God. Specifically, if you remember from the story, he's sent out to anoint two kings and to begin mentoring his successor, Elisha. That's second mountain stuff. So back to Andy Stanley. What moved him from the first mountain to the second, if that is indeed what's happening? 
Well, the way he says it in his latest book is that it was the debacle of the year 2020. He, like most every other pastor, endured the divisiveness of that particular year, but perhaps he endured it 30,000 times more, and the decisions he and his church made ended up on national news, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, and the like. And because his church took a bit of a middle ground posture, they end up getting shot at from both sides, doing too much, doing too little, whatever it might be. And yet they were seeking to step off the first mountain of ambition, idolatry, whatever it might be. They decided together to be not in it to win it. On the second mountain, they're trying, not perfectly, certainly not perfectly, none of us can, but they're trying to be okay with losing so that others can win. That's different. For most of our conversation today, we have leaned into the example of Elijah and his two-mountain experience. There is, however, yet another example in the scriptures who is an even better example of second mountain living. That person's name is Jesus. As you know, in the New Testament, Jesus is often presented as a second Adam or a second Moses or a second David. And in each of these instances, the earlier figures are shadow figures of Jesus, who is the real deal. Well, there's at least one instance in the New Testament in which I'm aware of that Jesus is suggested to be a kind of second Elijah. And it was the delight of my week to discover it, at least in regard to sermon preparation. Get this, in case you don't know it, most commentaries present the Elijah story saying that chapter 18, Mount Carmel, is the high point of his life. It's Elijah at his best. And they say that chapter 19, Mount Horeb, is Elijah's low point, Elijah at his worst. That alone is perhaps a commentary on what our world today values most, right? You may have noticed today that I'm suggesting it the other way around, that it might just be that the second mountain is better than the first. And so in the one instance that Jesus is invited to be like first mountain Elijah, Mount Carmel Elijah, Jesus simply says, no thanks. The story is in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56. Jesus is interacting with a Samaritan village, who, by the way, are kind of New Testament representative of the others, those who do not believe or behave as we think they should. And sure enough, they reject Jesus in this particular instance. And the disciples turn to Jesus and say in the yellow, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And then look at the footnote, as Elijah did. The footnotes are representing other manuscripts telling the same story including a few extra details. Jesus responds with a simple rebuke. No, he says to his disciples. And the footnote adds a fuller picture. Jesus says, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. That's second mountain living, friends. I have a chart that I want to share with you that represents the summary of what we've talked about this morning. You can see the differences up there between first mountain and second mountain living. You can take a photo of this if you'd like to. Think on it a bit later. But I want to conclude today by simply inviting you to consider which mountain have you been climbing lately? 
And whichever one you're on, I wonder if you would pause long enough to hear God say, what are you doing here, name? When God asks that question, it's an invitation to second mountain living. It's a place where God calls us by name. A place where God invites us into a different way of being in the world. And a place where God promises of this alternate way that your labor is not in vain. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. our response this morning, I invite you to stand and let's join our voices together and sing. Oh, mm-hmm.
Friends, the question of the day is one asked by God as we seek to climb the mountains of life. What are you doing here, name? And the promise of God is that on the second mountain, our labor is not in vain. As you go from this place, may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. Amen. Go in peace.